Well, this past week, my family went to Adventureland. Um, my boys won tickets, uh, and so we'd promised them that we would take them, and so this past Monday was the day. And I will be honest, I didn't want to go. Like Sunday, I was tired, I was worn out, and Leanne sits down on the couch and says, we forgot something on our calendar. And I'm thinking, oh no, I can't do another thing. She says, we said we were going to go to Adventureland. And inside I'm screaming, no, but my boys wanted to go. So we said, okay, we'll go. And I am pleased to report that we had a blast. Um, I ended up having a ton of fun. I think as a family, collectively, the best part for us was uh, Adventure Bay. Would you guys agree with that? The, the water park portion of Adventureland. Um, but for me personally... The highlight was the monster. Anyone done the monster roller coaster? Oh my goodness, I brought it for you. You, you got to ride this with me. This thing is awesome. I mean, like, it is the best roller coaster I have ever been on. It was so incredibly smooth. I mean, it was a rush. Now, I, I, I got to confess, I have been in ministry pretty much my whole entire adult life. And being in ministry doesn't exactly afford you a lot of money to afford the luxuries like roller coasters, all right? So this might not even top the top 100 of best roller coasters in the world. I mean, this thing might actually be pathetic, but in my very sheltered life, this is the best roller coaster I have ever been on. I loved it. Unfortunately, I did it towards the end of the day. If I had done it earlier in the day, my family may not have seen me the rest of the time. I probably would have just been on the roller coaster over and over and over. In fact, the girl I rode next to, she's like, this is my fourth time. Uh, I mean, it's, it's addicting. It is a rush. I absolutely loved it. Okay, for those who are getting motion sick, close your eyes. Everyone else, <laughs> go on to the next screen, Zion. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Now, before I could enjoy the monster, uh, before my family could enjoy Adventure Park, we had to actually get to Adventureland. If you've ever pulled up directions on your phone, you know that Google or Apple Maps will often suggest three different routes. Now, we knew the route we wanted to take. Our son, Salem, is 14. He's got his driver's permit, and we wanted him to get some practice being out on four-lane highways and interstate. And so we made him drive whether he wanted to or not. Thankfully, he did, and he, he did a good job. All right. But uh, so, so that meant 218 down to Cedar Falls, catch Highway 20. You're taking that over to I-35 and then I-35 South before we made a little pit stop. And then I took over before we hit Des Moines and, and the, the traffic. But uh, that was the route we knew we were going to take. But if we had wanted, we could have just caught Highway 3 out of Waverly, headed straight west and caught I-35 and headed down south. Or we could have taken Google's preferred route which was primarily Iowa Highway 14 and kind of heading diagonal and hitting a couple of other Iowa highways and, you know, a lot of twists and turns going through a few small towns and that's not what we wanted Salem to have practice on. So we obviously didn't take that route. But I know families who would argue about what route to take. Like this is worth, you know, every ounce to, to fight over. Thankfully, the Bird family did not fight like that Bird family. Um, we were fine, but I, I remember doing premarital counseling with a couple once, and uh, the, uh, uh, the topic was going to be conflict resolution. And I, I looked at the couple, and I said, so is there anything that you guys seem to argue about on a regular basis? And all of a sudden, the bride-to-be just shoots a look, a scowl on her face over her groom, and he gets this innocent look, kind of rolls his eyes like, me? No. And she looks back at me and goes, how to get from one place to another in this darn city? Turns out that Cedar Rapids isn't exactly laid out by a normal person. Some, I think they gave the plans to the insane asylum and just said, you know, figure something out. And so they have this, you know, way around town. 
Well, the one, the groom, he had grown up in Cedar Rapids, so he knew all of his preferred routes. She did not. So for her to figure out how to get from one place to another, she would always use a map. This is before smartphones. This tells you how old this story is. So she would use a map and they would fight and argue the best route to take. Because for some people, the best route is always the fastest route. It doesn't matter if it's actually going to take a few more miles. They just want to get there the quickest they possibly can. For others, no, you want the least amount of miles because you don't want to put the miles on your car. You're, you're trying to take care of your, your vehicle. And so you're going to take the, the most direct route. For others, it's just the scenery. They just want the prettiest route. You know, it, it doesn't matter fastest, what, whatever. They just want to see something nice along the way. And this is worth, for some people, fighting over, which is ridiculous. Because the whole point of the trip is to get to your destination safely and on time. That's what it's about. I think that's a perfect illustration for church governance. Oh, what a switch, huh? Like, we go from adventure land to how to govern a church. All right, this, this just became an incredibly boring message. But seriously, for some people, this is worth fighting and arguing over. I mean, you've got people who, it's got to be a council-led church, and you've got to have different representatives from every single demographic group within your church, or it's got to be a board that, that elected, and they serve a certain amount of terms, or no, it's actually a staff-led church, or no, it's going to be governed by an outside force, uh, you know, an outside group that they really know what's going on. Or let's admit it, some churches are just playing dictatorships. The pastor's in charge, whatever he or she says, that's what's going to happen, and that's what, what it is. And they argue and fight over this. But what we have to remember is the destination. What is the, not the route, but where is it that the church is heading? What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to make disciples. Jesus told us in, in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. That's where the church is heading. It is the church declaring the universal reign of the sovereign God through Christ. And what Jesus did for us through the cross. That's, that's the mission of the church. And you can do that mission with a deacon board led church. You can do that with an elder team. You can do that with a, a council. You can do that even with being led by a staff. Now, there, well, I, before I say that, let me say this. So what I, we're going to do a three-week series here on elders. This is where Riverwood's going. We're making a really significant transition within our church family. And so it's worth us taking a little bit of time to talk about this. But I want you to hear, I'm trying to come at this very humbly, right? Because by me saying, here's how Riverwood's going to do it, I don't want you walking out of here thinking, well, that's the only way to do it. Right? Do not hear that this is the only biblical way. Other, other churches doing it a different way are not being unbiblical. They're not being ungodly. They're not like on the verge of the fires of hell. They're, like, they're probably okay as long as they're seeking the mission of making disciples. But with that said, I have come to some conclusions, to, to some convictions that what I feel are biblical, for what I feel is going to be healthiest for Riverwood, for what I think is going to set us up for our best days yet. And that includes elders. And, and, and so I may look at another route that another church may take. And to me, they might be going through South Dakota to try to get down to Adventureland. But they may be looking at me thinking, I'm trying to go through Wisconsin to get there. The point is, are we accomplishing the mission that God's given us? And how can we best do it in a way that the church family is a part of this and we move together under the headship and lordship of Jesus? And so we're going to take three weeks to talk about this. We're going to talk about 
the, the uh, why, who, and what of elders. All right, this week we're going to look at why would a church even want elders. Next week we're going to look at who are those elders, like what are the qualifications, and then what is it that elders actually do. And I'm going to explain a little bit more where it's at in this process. So before I jump into this semi-controversial subject, let us pray. So Heavenly Father, uh, as we come now to the scriptures, I pray that you would be the ultimate teacher today, uh, that you would be the one who would help us to see what you're calling at least us as a church family to do. And uh, Lord, I pray for this transition. It's, it's a big one. It's an important one, but it's an exciting one. I, I really believe that you have our best days ahead. And so I pray that you would speak cl- loud and clear to us uh, of what it is uh, you want for our church family and, and uh, how to, to allow these elders to, to lead our church family into the days that you hold for us. And so we pray for you to be the ultimate teacher today. In Jesus' name, I, I ask it. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible with you today, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6. Now, I know I'm asking you to turn to Acts 6. I'm going to actually start reading over in Romans 12. So if you really want to, you can join me over in Romans 12. I'm going to start in verse 3. But if, you're, if you want to be in our main passage, just head to Acts 6 and camp out there and wait for me there. I want to start with Romans 12 um, for, for a couple of reasons. What we're going to see in Acts 6 is we're going to see how the first elders handled a really sticky situation. But I want us to realize why there are these elders in the first place. And so I'm going over to, to, to Romans chapter 12. Some of you were with us in the spring when we studied Romans 12 through 15. It was the And Jesus series where we looked at how do you take these various areas of life and bring Jesus in and really keep him as the center of these areas. Uh, in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, Paul is writing this letter to this church in Rome. He's never been to Rome yet. He hasn't been arrested and, and, and taken to Rome. So he's writing this letter kind of saying, hey, I hope to, to come to you. But I, I want you to understand what I'm going to be teaching when I eventually do come. And that's the gospel. And so he basically spends chapters 1 through 11 explaining, here's what the gospel is. And then in chapter 12, he makes this turn, this shift to say, so now because of the gospel that we had just talked about for 11 chapters, now here's how it impacts life. And one of the very first things he talks about is how the gospel impacts our view of self, which therefore impacts our relationships with others. And that's what he begins. So join me, uh, Romans 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, I've talked about this before, but I'm going to mention it again. The gospel keeps you from thinking too highly of yourself. I mean, the, the, the gospel basically tells you, you're a mess. Like, you're dead in your sin. There's nothing you can do for yourself. So the gospel lets you know, like, yeah, you're a little more messy than you realize. However, the gospel also tells us you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. Like, there's nothing you could do to save yourself from your sin. Jesus did it all. That's how much he loves you. He paid your penalty. He died your death so that you could then be made spiritually alive and enter into a relationship with God. So that's why you have to think of of yourself with sober judgment. You can't think too high of yourself because the gospel says, yeah, you're a mess. But you can't beat yourself up because, whoa, 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 wait a second. You are deeply loved by God. He created you. He's restoring his image in you. You are loved. So when you have this image of yourself, you start having this healthy view of yourself, it now affects how you interact with others. Because if you're thinking too high of yourself, you're going to look down on other people. 
But if you're thinking too low of yourself, you're going to end up worshiping other people. But when you have this healthy view of yourself, you realize it's all about God. And now I can truly serve these other people. And that's what Paul starts getting into. Verse four, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So he's saying, hey, if you follow Jesus, you are part of something bigger than just yourself. And that means you are to love each other. You're to bring the, the kind of the gifts that you have. I don't know if you realize this. While God is trying to, to make you like Jesus, to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived, we're going to talk about that a little bit more here in a moment. You're not quite Jesus yet. Right? Meaning you don't have everything as perfect as he was. M meaning the things that you contribute are great and good, but you can't bring everything in. That's why a church cannot be just one person. It's got to be the collection because you have certain gifts to bring in that I don't have. So I bring my gifts, you bring your gifts, we all contribute it in, and look what we have. We have something beautiful. We have the church. And that's what he starts getting into then. So in verses six and seven and eight, he starts lifting, listing off some of these spiritual gifts. I want to draw your attention to one of them down in verse eight. It is this one, the one who leads with zeal. He's identifying leadership as a spiritual gift. Now notice he puts it just into the mix with the other ones. So it's not saying that leadership is the, the best one. It's over all these others. No, you still, you need someone to lead, but you still need someone to like show mercy. You need other people to, to give. You need some people to serve. You, you need some people to teach. Like we all need to give our gifts in. And those that have been given a gift of leadership need to give those gifts into the church. It's for the benefit. It's for the health of the church. It's not better. It's not worse, but it's needed and necessary. Now there are a number of ways to lead within a church. Right, let, let's just take Riverwood, for example. All right, a, a young church and yet there are numerous areas that you can lead. You, you could help lead music. You, you could, you know, come up here and, and, and help lead us in song. Or you could lead like a class, like Kids Creek or, or, or in preschool. You could lead a growth group. You could lead a, another class. You could lead a ministry, you know, help schedule people to serve in a, a, in a certain area. There are all sorts of ways that you could lead. But the scriptures talk about one role of leadership more than just about any other role of leadership. And that is the role of elder. Now, I don't know about you, what comes to your mind. Some people, when they hear the word elder, they think of someone older because they were told when they were a kid, respect your elders, right? And so to them, that's like grandma and grandpa age. And so, okay, we got to show respect. Others, it, it might be like the board from their church. They grew up in a church that had an elder board. And so they, they envisioned some of the people that were on that board. Or maybe you envision the Mormon missionaries that come to your door because they have the little tag that says like, you know, elder so-and-so. Well, that's not their name, but you know what I mean. You know, the, the, that might be what you have in your mind. In the scriptures, the word elder really just means overseer. It's just kind of that person or the group of people who are overseeing, helping to love and shepherd and pastor the church. And so when, when we read the word elder, it's really just talking about these people who are saying, I will use my spiritual gift of leadership to help lead this church. Now, we're going to get next week into a little more of the qualifications of, of who is really qualified to be an elder. But this week, I want to give you four reasons for why a church would even want to have elders. All right, four reasons. But before I can get to those four reasons, we need to talk about one thing. We need to talk about stewardship because these four things come out of this concept 
of stewardship. Um, a few weeks ago, Jacob Tews gave us an excellent sermon as part of our uh, discipline series when he talked about the spiritual discipline of giving. And during that message, he talked about this idea, this concept of stewardship. A, a steward is merely someone who uh, manages the resources of, of someone else. In, I, I forget if Jacob actually used this uh, illustration, but it's always the first one that comes to my mind. In literature, there's a, uh, the most famous steward is Denethor from the Return of the King book, the third book in Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Denethor is not the king of Gondor. He's the steward. There, there used to be a line of kings over Gondor, but that line has been missing. And so this, the, the next line down, kind of like vice king, is this steward. He's supposed to, in a sense, protect the city to keep it going until the king returns. That's the name of the third book, Return of the King. That's the idea. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are like Denethor. You are not the king or the queen of the things in your life. You are a steward. Because everything you have has been given to you by God. If you're married, your spouse. If you're a parent, your kids have been given to you. If you have a job, your job has been given to you. If you have a house or a car, that's been given to you. Even the breath you breathe has been given to you by God. It's all his. You are merely a steward. So what are you going to do with it? This is why like, child abuse is so incredibly evil. Because you are taking a little human being who has the image of God in them and you are abusing them, doing whatever you want with them. No, you're not to do that. That's why it's so evil. To be a steward means to care and manage these things that belong to God. So if you are a parent, you've got to care for these children because they ultimately belong to God. And if you need a picture that they truly belong to God, guess what? They grow up and they move out. I'm experiencing it right now. It's a reminder. They're not yours. They're God's. You get them for a time. You must steward it well. This concept for stewardship actually begins in the very first book of the Bible. God creates the Garden of Eden and puts Adam and then Eve in this garden. And what are they to do? They're to tend it. They're to care for it. They are to steward it it. And they can't just do with the garden whatever they want because they don't own it. It's God's garden. And he even gives them one rule for what they can do in this garden. That's the one rule, of course, that they break, bringing sin into the grand narrative. But still, it was God's garden and they were to steward it according to his rules. I think it's the same with the church. The church belongs to God. We're going to see a passage here in a little bit where we see that the church is actually purchased with the blood of Christ. It belongs to Jesus. And so Jesus is the head of the church. It's his church, but he's left it to us humans. And so we are to steward it. We are to take care of it. We can't just use it for however we want. Which means that the four things we're going to see by these elders in, in Acts 6, they're doing out of stewardship. They're doing this to try to care for God's church and God's people. And I think it helps us see why Riverwood, at least, would want to have elders. So join me in Acts chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, I'll pause there. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. In, the, in Jerusalem, you, you've got a, a lot of people. 
uh, most Jews were kind of Hebrew in background. They spoke a Hebrew language. They would study the Hebrew Bible. They, they, they thought like a Hebrew. But there had been some people who, they were still Jewish, and they still believed in the Jewish God. And, and here, they're actually believing that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But they spoke Greek, and they thought more like the Greeks. They, they had been more influenced by Greek culture. And so it's like a little bit of cultural discrimination going on here, maybe even racial discrimination, all right? But that's who the, the Hellenists were, all right? There was a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There was this food distribution that was taking place every day to help take care of these widows. Verse 2, and the 12, that's the apostles, the, the elders, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. I love the book of Acts. It's this phenomenal history book all about the start and expansion of the church. Uh, in fact, did you know that from an archaeological standpoint, the book of Acts is 100% verified? I read that in an article years ago written by a Jew. He didn't believe the theological things about Jesus, but he said from an archaeological standpoint, yeah, the book of Acts is 100% verified. So all the names, all the places, archaeology has found these, these people in, in the records. Well, what is the history that's in there? Well, in chapter 1, we see Jesus saying, hey, go make disciples, and he says where to do it, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends up to heaven, leaving the ministry to his followers. And so then in chapter 2, we see the start of the church. There's this big feast going on in Jerusalem. It's called Pentecost. And at that time, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And it comes down as tongues of flame, lands on the people. And they begin to praise God in other languages. And there was this big commotion. So all these people gather around. And they hear these people from Galilee speaking their home language. I mean, it'd be like suddenly, you know, big commotion, all these people from all over the nations come right here and suddenly they, like all these Iowans are speaking Spanish and German and Latin and how in the world? That's kind of what happened. And, and so that's the start of the church. And so Peter stands up and he says, hey, here, here's what's happening right now. And he ends up preaching the gospel and 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus that day. They believe that he is the Jewish Messiah. And so they went from a small little country church of 120 to a mega church of 3,000 in one day. Chapter 3 and 4, we see that the church continue to expand, even in the face of persecution. The Jewish leaders were starting to feel threatened by this movement that proclaiming Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, they started calling it the way. And so the, these Jewish leaders were trying to stop the way, and they couldn't. It just kept expanding and expanding. But anytime you start bringing a collection of living human beings around, usually problems start up. And sure enough, in chapter 5, there's this couple that they want to get a little bit of attention. And so they lie about some property that they sold, trying to get people to think that they were, you know, really remarkable for giving what they were. 
this ends up leading to their death. It causes a, a big furor within the church and, and some rumblings. And then in chapter 6, which we just read, there's this discrimination going on. These, these Greek-speaking Jewish widows are now being ignored. They're being overlooked. They're not being given food. And so they're starting to go hungry. And now some of their, like, you know, I guess you could say their race is starting to notice this. And they're starting to speak up. It's like this rally going around. Hellenist lives matter. Hellenist lives matter. And this other group's going, wait, well, no, all, all lives matter. Of course, you know, so be quiet, shut down. And, and it's starting to create problems. This is the sort of stuff that churches split over. Someone's not being cared for. Someone else notices and speaks up. It doesn't get addressed. And a, a group ends up walking out. In chapter 2 and in chapter 4, you see the church being described as incredibly generous. They are caring for one another in remarkable ways. So much so that the outside world is looking in going, whoa. And now a group is being overlooked. They're not being cared for. And this is now the opportunity for the outside world to look and go, yeah, I knew it was too good to be true. This has the potential to stop this movement in its tracks. So how do they navigate this incredibly sticky situation as, as such a young church? Well, the things that I see these elders respond with are four reasons why I think that we as a church should adopt an elder form of, of governance. And these four things are this. The first one is discipleship. Why a church would want elders is for discipleship. Look at verse uh, 2 with me and then down to verse 4. This, this issue creeps up. And so the 12, the, the 12 elders, the apostles, they summon the, the church together. They, they hold a church meeting. And they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Let's skip down to verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now... How in the world can they say that getting up and teaching, discipling people is more important than making sure that these widows have their bellies filled? I mean, isn't it important for them to get food? I mean, they're starving, and yet you've got to, like, go and use words? I mean, I, this doesn't make sense. Why in the world would they be saying this? Because of the mission that they'd been given. I mean, God made it very, very clear his mission was for his disciples to go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says that they're to baptize them in the name of Jesus, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. All right, these are Jesus's last words right before you, you watch him ascend to heaven. I think you take those words to heart. And he's saying, here's what I want you to do. And so this is what they're trying to do. And now this issue is coming up that's trying to, oh, like pull them away, divert them. And yet they're saying, no, this is what we have to be about. In fact, the Apostle Paul in, in Colossians 1.28, he put it this way. He said, him, meaning Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. God's goal for you is that you would become like Jesus, that you would become mature in Christ this world desperately needs people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. It is of utmost importance. That is why the Acts 6 elders are saying, we can't give ourselves to waiting tables. We can't just become waiters. We've got to continue to be teachers. We've got to continue to disciple because this is the mission that God gave us because this is the most important thing we could do. So why would a church want elders? Because those elders, if they take their role seriously, 
are going to help make sure that people are growing spiritually, that they're being sanctified, that the, the giving room for the Holy Spirit to continue to teach them and change their character so that they become more and more like Christ. Because if you think about it, if the rest of the church was really being more like Christ, then they would love these widows like Christ would love these widows. And that leads into the second thing. The second reason a church would want elders is because elders will care. They help bring a level of care. No, notice in there that the, the elders do not say, oh, Hellenistic widows, we are so sorry. Um, you, we, we've just got to continue to teach and, and, and preach. No, like they care. They realize, uh, I mean, these are good Jewish boys. They would know that in Genesis 1, 20, oh, 26 and 27, that, it, that it basically God said, let us make man in our image. And so the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit created mankind, making them in his image. Now, that image was marred. It was broken. It was distorted through the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, that image kind of became messed up. That's why Jesus came, to restore that image within humans. But even with someone where the image is distorted, it's still there. And so if that image is there, then they matter to God. Jesus died on a cross so that people's sins would be forgiven, so that that image could be restored. And, and, and so that means even Greek-speaking Jewish widows matter to God. And so that's why we don't see the elders saying, too bad, get over it. No, they realize they matter. They're human, they matter. But they also know we can't do it ourselves. And so they begin to try to put in place a system to make sure that these people are being cared for. Uh, one of my really good friends, his name is Leo. He used to pastor a small country church up in Michigan. And I remember one time talking with him on the phone. Uh, his church was only about 80 people or so. Average age was probably in the 70s. Uh, and so it was quite common for people in his church to, to have to go to the hospital for one reason or another. And so he would try to make hospital visits. But there were two things that were difficult in making it, him being able to go all the time. One, the church paid him a really, really, really embarrassingly meager salary. And so he had to work a second job because he and his family have seven kids. And so they needed to put food on the table. And, and so he had to have the second job. But also, sometimes the hostel that they'd be sent to was over an hour away. And it was sometimes really difficult to get down there. And so Leo decided, I've got to put together a team. So he recruited some people who were serving as deacons and a couple of board members to be this care team, this visitation team, so that when someone went to the hospital, someone from the church would go and visit them. But people weren't happy because in their mind, yeah, it's nice that a deacon came or, oh, yeah, yeah, that board member, I like him. Or, yeah, someone from my small group came and visited me, but the church just didn't come to visit me because the pastor did not come. The role of the elders is not to do all of the care. The role of the elders is to make sure that care is taking place. Here at Riverwood, one of our vehicles for care are our growth groups. We push and push and push for people to get into these groups because we know that if you get into a group, you start building relationships, you start building friendships, and then you start feeling the freedom to open up. And now you have people caring for you. They're praying for you. They're hearing your heart. Some of you, you've been in groups where they brought you meals when you've had a baby or there's, you know, a health issue. You, you, I've seen some of you go over and, and like clean one another's houses or go and mow someone's lawn. You've stepped in and provided care. And guess what? I didn't do all of it. My wife has not brought every single meal and that's fine because we tried to put in place these systems where you can be loved and cared for. 
And that's what's happening here in Acts 6. These elders realize people matter, and so we have to have care taking place. And they know that they can't do it all themselves. I mean, they're a church of, at, at, at minimum, 3,000. Most likely, they're now 6,000, 10,000 people. There's no way these 12 people can administer care to all 10,000 people. But yet these people matter to God. And so they do what they can to make sure these systems are in place. That's what good elders will do. The third thing that I noticed here is protection, is that they help bring protection to the church. Protection, I would say, is a type of care, but it goes beyond that. For instance, if you are a parent and you have a toddler, when you feed your toddler food, or maybe you sit on the couch and you cuddle and read a book, you are caring for your child. But when your child's out playing in the yard and the dog starts bounding, and you can tell the dog is going to jump on top of the child, you spring into action, right? You're seeking to protect this child. It's because you care, but it's going a little bit beyond. You are seeking to protect that's what the elders are doing here. They're wanting these widows to be cared for, but they're also trying to protect the church. They're trying to protect their reputation. They're trying to protect them spiritually. They're trying to protect them emotionally. They're trying to protect it from a church split. The apostle Paul talks more about protection when he gives some instructions to the elders from Ephesus. If you want, flip over to Acts chapter 20 with me. Acts 20. Um, the background on this story Paul planted the church that's in Ephesus and lived there for three years. It's the city that he lived in more than any other city once he'd begun his traveling ministry. And so that would mean that he has a lot of relationships in Ephesus. Well, he's left, he's gone on, he's planted other churches, but now he knows the Holy Spirit is revealed to him. He's going to end up going to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, and eventually he's going to end up in Rome where he's going to share the gospel with Caesar. So he knows this is what's ahead of him. Well, as he's on his way back to Jerusalem, he's kind of coming by Ephesus. It'd be really easy to swing through Ephesus. And yet he knows, if I stop in Ephesus, these guys aren't going to let me leave after just a few weeks or months. I'm going to be here a long time. So he ends up going to a nearby port, sends a messenger, says, hey, guys, come over here. I want to I talk with you. So the elders from Ephesus come over to visit Paul. And here's what Paul gives to them in his very last words ever to them. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I'm going to pause there for a second. Notice, whose church is it? It's Jesus's because he obtained it with his own blood. So he's reminding them, you're stewards. And as stewards, what are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to care for the church. Right? They're, they're, they're supposed to be like these under-shepherds. If Jesus is the head shepherd and we, the people, are the sheep, they're like these under-shepherds, or maybe better term would be lead sheep. They're to help draw people towards Jesus. But now notice what he says that, that they need to do for this flock of God's sheep. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He's saying, guys, you've got to protect this church. These are God's sheep. And there will be teachers who will try to come in and wreck this thing. Jesus described Satan as a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so because this is God's church, Satan's going to do whatever he can to steal it, to kill it, and destroy it. And if that means he's got to do it to the individuals within the church, 
he'll go for it. And so these elders have to protect. So why would a church want elders? To help disciple them, to care for them, but also to protect them, to protect them emotionally, spiritually, theologically, to help provide protection. The fourth thing that I see here is leadership. This one's pretty obvious, especially because I kind of started this message off with Romans 12, where I point out that one spiritual gift is leadership that the church needs. But I just want you to pay attention here to, in, in Acts 6 to what, uh, to what they do and how they lead. First, they know their mission. They know where they're going, all right? And that's just not for them individually. That's for them as, as leaders of the church. They're trying to lead this church. That's a form of leadership. But notice, they don't steamroll over the people. Right? Look, look in verse 5. They, they roll out this plan in verse 4. And so in verse 5 it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. In a healthy church, your elders are allowed to lead. It isn't just the church making all the decisions. It, it's saying you've been given this gift of leadership. And so our church will be healthier and better if you lead. However, they don't just lead and everyone goes, well, whatever they say. No, there's this like symbiotic relationship. The elders bring this plan to the people. And the people are like, yeah, that, that actually sounds really good. And so they nominate from among themselves these, these leaders. These are the first deacons. And they bring them before the elders. And the elders lay their hands on it and just give them the ministry. And they say, lead with excellence because we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the word. There's this relationship. And, and, and so it isn't just congregational rule, but it also isn't a dictatorship. There's, there's this relationship because they have the same spirit and God is leading them all in the same direction. So four reasons why I think a church would want elders. Uh, they help to disciple the church. They help provide care. They help in uh, uh, leading and they help to protect. So why are we doing this? Because since the inception of Riverwood, I have envisioned us having an elder team. The scriptures are very clear in not naming elders too quickly. And so that's why we haven't just said, oh, you know what? I like you. I like you. I like you. Let's just form this team. But it's gotten to the place where I wasn't comfortable with it kind of just being me. And for a long time, it was me and Jeff. And so that's why this last year, we started our temporary leadership team. And that temporary leadership team had a very narrow focus. We had two primary goals. Unfortunately, we had a lot of other things come onto our plate, such as finding a location. But we still tried to keep ourselves focused on these two main goals. The first one was to uh, get our church constitution written and finalized. That is pretty much done. We're going to be rolling that out to our church partners here very soon. The second thing we were aiming to do was to create the process for how do we identify, vet, and install elders. We have that now set. And so a few weeks ago, I sent an email out to our church partners. Those of you who are just part of our, our Riverwood family, I'm just catching up to speed. Um, but those of you who are church partners, you'll hopefully remember, we sent out an email and I asked for you to nominate potential elders. All right. We had a few names given. I met with each of those people. Some of them said, yeah, that's not the right spot for me. Okay. If, if you, you know, because we're going to see next week, one of the things that a, an elder needs to be do is they must be willing to serve, right? They, they weren't willing. Uh, some just said, you know what? Maybe one day, but now's not the right time. But then we had four individuals who said, you know what? I, maybe I am called to do this. And so la, la, last week, maybe almost two weeks ago, we gave out this elder application that we created. Well, actually borrowed heavily from another church. Uh, gave this to them, and we asked them, hey, would you go through this? It, it asks for you know, them to share their own story of how they've met Jesus, how they've been growing in their faith, but also where do they stand on certain doctrinal issues. 
And then as they turn those in, we're going to sit down and have an interview with them and their, their wife. And after, through that, if they still feel this way and we feel like it's the right thing, we're going to present them before our church partners. And our church partners are going to have a chance to hear their stories and hear their hearts. And then after a couple of weeks after presenting them, going to give that affirmative vote saying, yeah, this, I think this person's helped called to, to lead our church family. We're trying to create that symbiotic relationship between our church partners and our elders. And then we will install them and they will help lead. I got to tell you, I have had a blast working with this temporary leadership team. I have really, really enjoyed them. It's so much fun to do something with others than just by yourself, right? And so I just want to give a shout out to to Jamie and to Tim and to Randy um, and uh, Jacob. And Jeff obviously was part of that team before he took off for his full-time job in Minnesota. Um, But I have been so grateful for what they have done and contributed. And and Riverwood is already better because of them. And I'm not going to tell you who the four candidates are for uh, elder, because if we work through the process and they realize, you know what, now's not the right time, or, you know, for some reason I'm, I'm, not, I'm not set to do this, I don't want them to have to, you know, give embarrassing thoughts or anything of why they're not doing it. But here's what I am going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pray. If you consider Riverwood your home church, would you just pray? Would you pray for these four individuals? That God would just make it clear, is this the right spot for them? Because this, this is a big ask. We, we've got some things for Riverwood that we need to make some decisions on. And I've intentionally set them aside because I really want them to help speak into this because I think we will make a better decision than if I just continue to, to move on ahead. And so we're intentionally waiting. So would you pray that God bring the right people into those roles? And then would you just pray for that team that we would begin to just gel together and really seek God together? Because I truly believe our best days are ahead of us. And I think God is going to corporately use them to accomplish this. My goal is to get Riverwood to a place where if I died in a car accident, Riverwood keeps going. And I think by having this elder team, that will help ensure that. Because I know that as we get these guys in here, they're going to take seriously this call to make sure that we are continued to be discipled. They're going to make sure that we are continued to be cared for because you matter to God deeply. They're going to continue to make sure that we are protected from from theological whims that try to come along just to help us stay grounded in seeking after Jesus. And and they're also just going to continue to lead us. We have this mission to invite the spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus. And it is so easy to start to get off of that just a little bit. And they'll make sure that we continue to do the mission that God has given us. And so would you just pray? Would you pray for them? Would you pray for this transition? This is going to be a good one. But it's, it's a big one. And anytime there's change, there's always potential problems in there. So would you just pray that this becomes a very natural transition, that as our temporary uh, leadership team, as they hand the baton off to the elder team, that we just hit the ground running and we actually see God do m- more amazing things than we've already seen. So Father, I just want to pray right now uh, for uh, this whole process. Uh, I pray for the, the guys that are right now filling out those uh, applications, uh, praying about this, sorting through this. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would put together the, the team that we need. And I know that this initial team isn't the only team, that there's going to be others that you'll eventually add to this team. And, and Lord, I, I look forward to seeing that you use them to lead us as a church family into the future that you hold for us. God, you have started this church. This is your church. And I just say thank you for all that you have already done in so many lives. And I just can't help but sense that there are a lot more lives that you want to impact. There are people out there who they are feeling very disconnected from you. They have sought after uh, joy and happiness through all sorts of means, and none of it's working. 
And what they need is you. And I believe that you've started Riverwood to help them find you and follow you. And Lord, I believe that these elders need to be a part of this process. I think this is going to be for their growth and benefit. But I know you've also put leadership gifts in them, and our church needs their voice. We will be healthier because of it. And so God, would you make this happen in your way, in your timing? And would you continue to protect our church family? Would you give us unity as we seek to make the, uh, fulfill the mission that you have given us? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.